We are taking a one-week break in our study of the book of Psalms to ask an important question about the Psalms, and namely, to what extent should we include them in our worship? And our passage this morning is Colossians 3, 16 through 17. I want to encourage you to stand as we read God's holy word. Colossians 3, 16 through 17, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, seeking psalm, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Lord God, as we study and learn from your word today, I pray that you would open our eyes, minds, hearts, help us to receive your word and maybe plant it in us and bear fruit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Paul speaks of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and most people, when they interpret Colossians 3, they get caught up in trying to discern the difference between those three categories. They ask questions like, what is the difference between a psalm and a hymn, and can sovereign grace music and the latest Getty tune be considered spiritual songs, right? That's what we typically ask when we see this in its parallel passage in Ephesians. And and this line of argument is actually flawed in two ways. The first is that you can't impose modern categories upon first century terms. You can't do that in order to understand Paul. In other words, Colossians 3 is not about distinguishing between modern psalms and hymns and Getty tunes. The words for psalm, hymn, and spiritual song in Greek are psalmos, hymnos, and ode pneumatica. And psalmos refers to a song that was sung while playing a psaltery. It's a small harp-like instrument. And when the New Testament writers used that word psalmos, they always referred actually to works from the book of Psalms, that were using that instrument. So, for example, in Luke 24, 44 through 45, Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Here the Psalms regarded were inspired writings, same level as the law and the prophets. And then we have the term hymnos, which in the ancient world was a song that was a tribute or praise of the gods. And of course, when the New Testament authors use that word from Greek, they are not meaning tributes to pagan gods, right? They are meaning songs that praise the god of gods, the king of kings, So whereas the term psalmos is emphasizing instrumental accompaniment, hymnos emphasized the content of the song, a specific type of song, a tribute of praise. In Matthew 26, 30, for example, we're told that after the Last Supper, Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn. 
That word is there, humnos, and then left to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And you ask, well, what was that hymn? Could you uh, go through our hymnals and find it? You would not find it to be Fanny Crosby's I Go to the Garden. All right? No, the hymn that Jesus and the disciples most likely sang was what was called the Hallel, which was the set of psalms in Psalm 113 through 118 in our Bibles. Most scholars believe that they sung the Hallel because that's what the Israelites sang after the Passover and at major feasts. And it, it makes sense that maybe that is what Jesus and the disciples were singing after the meal together. Hallel means praise. It refers, like I said, to those six psalms that were used to praise God, and they were at several of the important Jewish feasts. And you ask, well, why would Matthew use the word humnos instead of psalmos? And it's probably simply because Jesus and the disciples sang them without musical accompaniment. So that was the more appropriate word, and those were psalms of praise or tribute to God. And what about the spiritual song, the Ode Pneumatica? Well, Ode is the, is the most general word of all of those three terms. It simply means song. And if that word were by itself, we'd have difficulty knowing what Paul was referring to in Colossians 3. But the adjective pneumatica is important because the word pneuma is one of the Greek terms used to refer to the Holy Spirit or to his activity. And so when you put those two together, Paul is saying a spirit-filled, influenced, inspired song. So when you read the word spiritual song, you can't just say Christian song. That's not strong enough. Spiritual is better understood as spirit-filled, maybe even spirit-inspired. Certainly spirit-filled. And the long and short of it is this, that when Paul says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, he's most likely referring, using very closely related terms, to incorporate the music that the church regarded as uniquely spirit-filled, specifically the psalms and any other songs that were written by God's people, such as Moses, after crossing the Red Sea, or Deborah, from the book of the Judges. And I think this has serious implications for us regarding the modern-day debate over worship music. Because rather than debate over whether we should sing a hymn written in the 18th or 19th century versus a sovereign grace tune written in the 21st century, we actually need to first ask whether we should even be singing non-scriptural music in the first place, and if there is room for non-scriptural music, what parameters should we use that go beyond just preference? And I said at the beginning there are two flaws in the normal debate about Colossians 3 and modern categories of music. The second flaw is this. In making Colossians 3.16 a debate about modern music, we miss why we are to be singing these songs in the first place. Because Colossians 3.16 says we are to teach and to admonish one another with these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. 
And how do we teach and admonish one another through song? If that is an important question, should we not be asking less whether a song is pleasant to sing and more whether it is able to teach and admonish? Now, the height of psalm writing occurred during the time of King David, but he was not the only musician, nor was he the only psalm writer. When David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, he asked the Levites to appoint three chief musicians to oversee all of the Levitical musicians in Israel. And in 1 Chronicles 15, 17, we see, so the Levites appointed Haman, the son of Joel, of his brothers, and of his brothers Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and of the sons of Merari, their brothers, Ethan, and then we see Heman, Asaph, and Ethan became, out of all of them, the chief musicians. Now we know that the Levitical musicians had two-week tours, if you will. They had two-week tours of duty in Jerusalem every year where they would come and serve, just like the priests and the doorkeepers and other different jobs within the Levitical people, the tribe, They were also present as a large group during the big feasts. But what did they do during the rest of the time? Well, 1 Chronicles 6 says that the Levitical families were spread through all the tribes, all the territories. They were given sometimes these little cities within the other tribes or simply lived in cities mixed in with the rest of the their brothers. In 1 Kings 4, we are told that Solomon was the wisest person in the land, so wise, in fact, that he was wiser, listen to this in 1 Kings 4, to let wiser than even Ethan and Heman, you already heard those two words, Calcol and Darda. You probably don't recognize the last two, but you certainly would likely recognize from our earlier passage in 1 Chronicles 15 at Ethan and Heman, and those were two of the three original chief musicians, right? And then 1 Kings 4, 30 tells us that Solomon's wisdom surpassed, like I said, all of those men, and that tells us that if we had taken Solomon out of the picture, at least two, possibly four of the wisest men in the land were whom? Levitical musicians. The chief musicians. The ones writing the worship music for the church. Asaph is not mentioned here, but he was, the, while the third chief musician, he was the author of several of the psalms that we have in the book of Psalms. When we think of our musicians today, does the idea of the wisest man on the planet come to mind? Are most church musicians teachers or are they entertainers? What sort of tasks do wise people usually perform? They usually teach others either directly or by example. And Haman, Ethan, and Asaph, these were Israel's teachers as were the rest of the Levitical musicians. And you might say teachers and not priests. Yes. We must not see the Levites as simply priests. 
They were actually teachers more often than they were priests. In Nehemiah, when Ezra finished reading God's word to the people, whom do you think went throughout the crowd of Israelites that gathered husbands and wives and children? Who went through the crowd and taught them what the words meant that Ezra read? Nehemiah tells us it was the Levites. You should think of them as the pastors and the home group leaders and the seminary professors. And so perhaps now we understand why the Levites didn't have their own separate territory. God saw to it that the priestly office and the best teaching through the spoken and sung word were available to all the people by spreading the Levites in all the other tribes. Remember that the faith of the Old Testament was memorized. And one of the best methods of memorization is learning songs. Think again about our passage from Colossians. Let the word of Christ, let the word dwell in us richly. How? By singing. Singing to one another. By teaching one another through song. If you're like me, you know that when you go to a restaurant, well, first of all, all the restaurants, for whatever reason, they think that now I'm part of the old group that goes because they're always playing the music from the 70s and 80s, right, in in the restaurants when Wendy and I go there. But what happens when you go to those places or you're in the store and you hear those songs? All the words come to your mind. You might not have sung them for 10 years, but they're all there in your brain. It's because God has engineered your body and your mind to uniquely incorporate music. And we are told that music is this primary vehicle for teaching and admonishing one another. And so it's vital to the worship of God's people, but not just any music. Rather, it has to be music that facilitates the memorization and meditation upon God's word. It can't just be sappy and repetitious and trite, but it needs to be doctrinally solid music. And sadly, I don't think most people in the church as a whole, not not necessarily CVP, but as the church with a capital C, view music as a partner in the ministry of the word rather than as entertainment in preparation for worship of the word. And what happens is inevitably people often quarrel over music due to the belief that it's purely a way of expressing ourselves. You'll find some in the church that never move their mouths during singing. Why? Because either they don't like to sing or they feel that they can't sing, whereas some can be heard over everyone else in the room because they believe they can sing and want to prove the point. And the perspective of both groups is the same, that music is somehow relative to the individual. I like to sing, I don't like to sing, and because what matters is my self-expression, I can sing however and whatever and whenever I want. But Paul is, is really challenging us here. He's saying, you are to admonish and teach one another 
through music. He doesn't say that it's an opportunity for self-expression, and it's actually quite the opposite. Singing among other believers is one of the ways that we actually submit to one another. Please hear this. Quite the opposite of thinking of music as self-expression. Music is a way that we actually submit to one another. In other words, we give up ourselves to one another to edify them in the body of Christ. We demonstrate our maturity as Christians when we are bound together by love, when we are ruled by peace and the word of Christ richly dwells within us and we are moved, we are desirous as we come in to the body of Christ and we we think about that time of singing we, we have in our minds. Not just that this is this quiet, that this is this moment between me and God vertically. I admit I struggle with that too. When I'm singing a song and I'm looking at the words, I'm thinking as as if it is a vertical moment, me and the Lord. But it's not just that. And that's, that's the challenge of Colossians 3, that you are being encouraged to think of music in this time of singing together as actually having an impact and an influence on the people around you. There is a horizontal impact of music. And a good question is, are you, as you sing, desiring by your example by the words that you sing, by even the way that you sing, thinking, I am going to edify the person right next to me. I'm going to edify the person in front of me and behind me. I'm going to be praying for these people. As we sing Psalm 62, as we, as we speak, I will praise. Men pray, you know, singing, I will praise. Are you thinking... It, that the women, as they echo us, is as if the men are speaking out to the women and encouraging them to respond. Is that how we see that Psalm 9 song? Or is it just, this is my turn, this is my turn, this is my turn, and I'm still in that vertical frame of mind. Singing and preaching are the left and right hands of God's chosen means of life transformation. And when a When a minister preaches, if he speaks of his own philosophy rather than of God's word, then his sermon will be empty of life-changing effect. It might might revolutionize the management of your bank account or it might make you feel better about yourself or give you good ideas for dates with your spouse. But to have true power... A sermon must be based upon, filled with, and supported by the Word of God, and the same is true of music. If it is trite and superficial, it will be void of any life-transforming power. It will not teach. It will just entertain and make us feel good. Preaching is the spoken word. Singing is the sung word. That's what God desires, and given that foundation... How do we use that to evaluate what we choose to sing in our own worship? And and how does that answer the question of what role the Psalms play? Well, because the emphasis in Scripture is music used to praise God and to teach 
and to admonish one another, we must make sure that the music we use actually does that. It can't be the other type of of entertaining music. Paul reminds us that the song must be spirit-filled. And so if and when we move away from music that is taken directly from the Bible, i.e. music that we already know is spirit-filled, right? Spirit-inspired from those words. We have to be that much more diligent to verify that what we choose fulfills the same function of praising God, of teaching one another while reflecting biblical content and principles. Such an important thing for us as we move away from Scripture. If, we look, if we're looking at, let's say, a Sovereign Grace song, we have to be asking the question, is this going to inspire us to bring the Word of God into our hearts? Is the content reflective of biblical principles and actual Scripture? Is this the type of song that's going to teach and admonish? Not does it have that beautiful change in that key right there in the middle of the refrain. And so in this regard, there's no difference actually between what are called hymns and praise choruses. I want to encourage us to go ahead and end the debate between hymns and praise choruses right here. I realize that hymns tend to have more advanced melody structures and often richer words, but that isn't always the case. There are plenty of sentimental, overly sentimental, sing-songy hymns, and there are lots of deep, melodically complex choruses and anthems. Our Our goal in planning music for the church's liturgy should not be some perfect blend of psalms and hymns and Sovereign Grace and Ethan Clark George songs, but rather the word of Christ to dwell richly within us. And our prayer as we select music should be that as people come every Sunday morning, as you all come every Sunday into the house of God, people who are distressed by perhaps persecution during the week or plagued by doubts or struggling with unresolved conflict or unmet expectations or saturated in the world's narrative for six days, that you will come in and you will be washed with the sung word of God and the spoken word of God and you will leave with the armor of God because your brothers and sisters have taught and admonished you and reminded you of who you are. When I talk about it being safest to use already spirit-inspired words of Scripture in our music, I do want to make the point that faithfulness to God's Word is more than just quoting lines of Scripture. There are some songs that are based upon one or two verses divorced entirely from the context of those verses. As we've been going through our psalms and our devotions uh, weekly or every weeknight during the week, what we've been doing is discovering You know, there's one line, right, of a psalm. You crown the year with goodness. That was what we saw uh, the night before last. But it was one verse, one line out of 30. And we have to be careful. One of my favorite examples of this is the chorus, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. That line is repeated 
And then a final line is, he has done great things, he has done great things, he has done great things, bless his holy name. And you may not recognize a biblical reference there from that song, but it is based upon Psalm 103. And there's nothing theologically inaccurate in that chorus, in its words, because it's actually quoting the Bible. And we should praise the Lord with all that is within us. And he has done great things indeed. But does that song really capture the context of Psalm 103? Well, what does Psalm 103 just first verses say? Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. He will not keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. That's another chorus. As far as the east is from the west, there's just that one line. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. And the psalm goes on. But the essence is that we are moved to bless the Lord together with all creation. One of the great themes of the Psalms, because despite our sin, God is abounding in mercy and saves us. And the great things that God has done were listed in those first 14 verses. All the things that he has done to remove our sins far from us. And so Psalm 103 goes on to remind us that our days are like grass, but the Lord's mercy is forever. And when you read the whole of Psalm 103, you can't help but depart with a right perspective of yourself and a right perspective of God. Your sin, your great need, God's great mercy, His steadfast love. And in contrast, the song blesses holy name by leaving out the rest of the context I think creates what is called a vagueness, an ambiguity that allows us to make the great things that God has done mean anything that we want. So don't underestimate the influence of music and teaching doctrine. The Christian church in the fourth century, you've heard me say this many times as an example how Arius spread Arianism which was a polytheism throughout the empire because of his clever songs they were easily learned they were they were fun songs to sing and the people began to sing them enough that they actually began to teach themselves from them almost took over the empire, Arianism. 
So our music must faithfully represent the scriptures. And just because a song purports to be based on a few lines, word for word, we still have to ask whether the song is faithful to include enough of the context to teach and admonish. Some of you may be wondering, well, then do we have to include all 22 verses of Psalm 103? And are we going to have the day when we get into week 14 of our rotation that we do all 176 verses of Psalm 119? Can we ever have songs that incorporate only portions of a passage? Well, think about what we just did. We saw how rich it was to examine a larger portion of Psalm 103, which teaches better, two verses or eight to ten? Which admonishes better? I think we'd all have to agree that at least with Psalm 103, a little more would have been better. And there's not a magic number of lines for a song to be considered a spirit-filled or spiritual song. However, to the extent that we leave out important things from the Bible, we will always have to be vigilant about asking, are we effectively teaching one another through this song? So this, we've been circling around this for a little bit and come back to this question. We're working through the book of Psalms. Should our worship be more heavily weighted towards Psalms and say less Getty? Well, I'll let Keith Getty speak for himself on that one because he makes a good point. And for those of you wondering why I'm referring to Keith Getty in the first place, well, a sizable number of some of our worship songs are either published by Sovereign Grace or written by Keith and Kristen Getty. And Keith Getty wrote an article titled, Ten Reasons Your Church Should Sing the Psalms. In which his ten reasons are, the Bible teaches us to. (laughs) Psalms are the word of God. Psalms are the songs that Jesus sang. Psalms give us a more authentic picture of God. Psalms are Christological. Psalms speak to the depth and breadth of human emotions. Psalms transform family worship. Psalms unify our church family. Psalms will revolutionize your church family. Number 10, Psalms are superb for evangelism in today's world. And then Getty concludes, for all that contemporary people apparently crave authenticity in worship, if we follow contemporary trends, we will succumb to the bias of our church leaders or the movements they follow. For example, only 3% of modern worship songs mention anything eternal, and they rarely take on themes of God that make us uncomfortable. And so then Getty concludes, the Psalms, meanwhile, make us wince when we sing of God's judgment and wrath. They also give us a far bigger, more beautiful, breathtaking picture of God's glory. And that was Keith Getty. And no, he's not trying to get us to stop using his music. And I think he does a better job than most in trying to write spiritual songs that are faithful to the word of God. We love many of the Getty songs. Oh, Church Arise is a Getty song. But let's not miss his encouragement that the Psalms are a vital resource for our worship, because in them we find all the great biblical themes, our depravity, 
the atonement, our redemption, creation, God's providence, God's wrath, his mercy, etc. They're all there. As Martin Luther once said, the Psalms are a little Bible unto themselves. Must we sing only Psalms? No. Psalms are definitely a model songbook, and they have the advantage of being inspired songs. You can't go wrong with them. But they are the songbook of pre-Christ Israel. And while the Psalms anticipate Christ, and while they are Christological, as Getty said, and should be sung today, there are many truths that are missing from them due to being before Christ. Think about Revelation 4, for example, where the saints and the elders around God's throne sing what is called a new song. The song is new because it is, has a subject that's not found in the Psalms. Namely, the victorious lamb upon the throne. And we would lose the fullness of God's works if we didn't incorporate the New Testament. For example, Psalm 103 that we looked at earlier talks about God's forgiveness. Would it not be appropriate to incorporate reference to the cross? One of the reasons Isaac Watts wrote many of the hymns that he did was that he realized that the exclusive psalmnodists of the 16th and 17th centuries actually never sang explicitly about Jesus. And our desire here at CVP is to use prudence, is to use wisdom in the music that we select for our worship. Martin Luther argued that the church needs many godly musicians who can make discerning judgments on what to sing and how to sing. And we're blessed to have both leaders and congregant members who have musical backgrounds. We continuously evaluate our music here at the church. We want it to be God-glorifying by being true to his word and edifying to his people. And we want it to be excellent and not vacuous. I encourage you as the body of Christ to think of music as we've seen in Colossians 3 to maybe challenge yourselves not only as you sing the, the communion songs in just a, a short bit, but also as you sing in future weeks to think about that horizontal component of edifying, admonishing, teaching those around you. I encourage you to challenge us as we select new music. Give us music as you come across it that fits the criteria that we've been talking about. Spirit-filled music that is true, to the context of the Bible that will be teaching scripturally, doctrinally solid songs to challenge us for music to incorporate in our worship. Understand the vital role that Paul says music plays and realize how important it is that we all sing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I do thank you that it is so rich, filled with everything we need to be equipped for righteousness. And Lord, I thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to not only speak the word to one another, but to sing the word to each other. 
And so, Lord, I I pray for those like Dave and others around him that are responsible for uh, selecting music for our church, that you would continue to give them discernment. I pray for those who are writing music in our world today, that you would bring songwriters like the Nathan Clark Georges and the Keith and Kristen Gettys of the world, that you would continue to guide them as they write good music. And I pray that we would ourselves not be caught up ever in wanting that really stirring, pleasant-sounding anthem over the words that would be communicated. Father, help us. uh, I pray for things like the Psalms Project and other things that are trying to put the Psalms themselves to singable music. Or may we have before us in the years to come just a very solid, deep, rich heritage, especially with the Psalms of music that we can sing to one another. So in Jesus' name I pray, amen.